Welcome to the Youth and Policy Podcast. We are a youth-run, nonpartisan institute utilizing discourse to redefine the way youth interacts with policy. The institute welcomes diversity, discourse, innovation, and education to achieve this goal. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Youth and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Siddiqui. So for this week's podcast, I'm going to be hosting the episode by myself as my co-host Kate is currently unavailable. But I wanted to get us started off with the Facebook whistleblower story. On Tuesday, former Facebook data scientist named Francis Wagen testified on Capitol Hill in front of a Senate subcommittee. In this hearing, Ms. Wagen alleged that Facebook harms children, sows division, and quote-unquote, undermines democracy to earn astronomical profits. She also stated that Facebook is aware that their algorithms are unhealthy and damage the mental health of users, but Facebook has refused to alter their algorithm because it would decrease their profits. So I thought it was funny to see uh, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp crash over the weekend, because if you know anything about Mark Zuckerberg, you know that when he first created Facebook, he was obsessed with keeping its servers online because he thought every minute the website was down was another minute he was losing money. Um, It was reported that Zuckerberg lost over $8 billion on Wednesday um, while the site was offline, and even Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey dunked on him when Facebook was quote-unquote for sale due to its DNS being down. But on a more serious note, nothing at the hearing was new news. We've known that Facebook's algorithms are damaging for years, and this just confirms it. And once again, this is a clear example of capitalism in practice. Corporations are designed to maximize their profit margin, and anything that doesn't achieve that goal is disregarded, no matter how much they're hurting people. And, you know, maximizing your profit margin is not always about money. In this case, it's certainly about power. Zuckerberg chose not to change Facebook's algorithm because if his profits decreased, he would lose his leverage to influence the government and the policies they pass. This would result in him having less power and control over us as citizens. Um, Facebook right now is currently the most powerful tool in the world. It's more powerful than any government. I mean, if you look at uh, the tremendous amount of influence a platform like Facebook has and the reach it has all over the world, Social media algorithms can significantly impact the results of elections, they can stir up violence, they can stir up coups, and this was seen in 2016 with Pizzagate, and then in 2020 with Hunter Biden's laptop, and then obviously the January 6th riots, and we've seen a tremendous amount of misinformation be spread on Facebook when it comes to things like COVID-19. So um, the entire concept of a company like Facebook one social media company that essentially it has, they have a monopoly over every other social media platform, right? Because you think you have um, diversity of choice. You have the illusion of choice. You think, oh, you have Facebook, you have Snapchat, you have Instagram, you have Twitter, you have TikTok, you know, whatever it may be. But all of those companies are subsidiary companies of Facebook. Facebook actually owns all of them. And um, the Facebook board of directors actually has a say in the direction that the other companies take. So you really don't have as much choice as you believe you do. Everything is truly controlled and owned by Facebook because uh, they formed a monopoly over, um, you know, social media platforms. You know, we used to have these things called antitrust laws um, that would prevent monopolies from forming so that, you know, when something like this happened, when Facebook servers shut down, uh, you know, WhatsApp servers and Instagram servers would not also be shut down because they would be their own independent company. But, uh, you know, during the Reagan eras, uh, they decided to repeal antitrust laws. Um, so maybe it's it's not the best idea to have, you know, one social media company just have a tremendous amount of influence and be able to 
um, basically own every other social media company and form a monopoly over um, the distribution of social media. Now, with that being said, I also wanted to address um, the main points of Mrs. Hwagen. Um, She essentially stated that she and her other co-workers conducted an investigation into Facebook's algorithm during the time in which they worked at Facebook. And they actually discovered that Facebook's algorithm uh, does all the things that I just mentioned before. It you know, damages the mental health of users, especially teens. It um, promotes violence. It gets people sucked up into um, conspiracy theories because we have these things called echo chambers where if you like one post, you get posts suggested, you get similar posts that are uh, similar to the original posts that you liked. And those posts can uh, lead you down to a dark, dark rabbit hole if you're not careful. And that is exactly how, uh, you know, misinformation spreads. And Facebook is has been 100% aware um, you know, that their algorithm is incredibly damaging, not just us individuals, but society as a whole. And, uh, you know, not to my surprise, maybe to some other surprise, they have not changed their algorithm. Um, because at the end of the day, they are a corporation and they are designed to maximize their profit margin, no matter how much they harm society as a whole or us as individuals. So um, I do hope that, you know, the federal government takes action to regulate uh, Facebook, as Mrs. Hwagen suggested. And I also hope that maybe the federal government can start implementing some new antitrust laws so that, you know, maybe uh, one company shouldn't own every other social media company. Maybe that's not uh, the best idea or the best thing for society as a whole. But that's just my thing. That being said, I want to segue into our next topic. So uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema, the controversial Democrat who threatens to sink President Biden's agenda, received more than $750,000 in donation from Big Pharma. After that, she announced her opposition to a Democratic plan to lower prescription drug costs. Senator Sinema left D.C. in the middle of these negotiations to go to Arizona State University, where she teaches a class. At ASU, she was followed into a bathroom and called out over her corruption. She was also confronted on a plane flight back to D.C. Now, before we get into the specifics of this, I just want to state a few facts. Um, as Senator Cinema hasn't held a town hall in years. Constituents who call her office can't get a hold of her. And recently, she's gone on a cocktail drinking fundraising tour where she's meeting up with big pharma lobbyists and special interests. So you must keep that in context as we're discussing the situation. It's impossible to get through to her as a constituent. Uh, now, as to whether the tactic of following her into the bathroom and, you know, uh, verbally criticizing her was acceptable or unacceptable, I think I personally think it was acceptable. Um, but in terms of the tactic that they used, I, I don't think it was borderline unacceptable. But if you look at the substance of what they were protesting and um, the prior cause as to why they had to engage in that tactic, I would say it is acceptable. Now, a lot of people will make the family member argument. They'll be like, oh, well, what if, it, what if someone followed your mom into the bathroom? What if someone followed uh, your sister into the bathroom? Well, my mom and my sister didn't take $750,000 from Big Pharma. My mom and my sister don't have blood on her hands, as Senator Cinema does. There is no way to hold Kirsten Cinema accountable. She's not up for re-election in 2022. She doesn't interact with her constituents. She doesn't respond to phone calls. She doesn't host town halls. So... What real option do her constituents have uh, to confront her when she's spending all her time, you know, meeting up with special interests and uh, lobbyists from all these corporations and she's not even interacting with her constituents? What choice are you left with as a citizen when the policies that she's trying to enact and the obstruction that she's engaging in 
um, is directly harming your life. What form of recourse do you have? You don't have any form of recourse. Okay, I don't think people understand uh, the severity of the situation. You know, Senator Cinema is one of two holdouts on the biggest piece of legislation in our lifetimes. This legislation is the only way to even somewhat mitigate the effects of climate change and make it so that senior citizens don't have to ration off their medicine and cut prescription drug pills in half. Senator Cinema is a public servant. As a member of Congress, you work for the people, not the other way around. So if you're not following through on the needs of your constituents, you're not doing your job. In both of these altercations, there was no violence or name calling. These activists were extremely mild mannered when you consider what Senator Cinema did to deserve uh, this kind of harassment. She left Washington, D.C. during the most important time of the year when Congress needed to suspend the debt limit and pass a budget plan for the next year. When it comes to protests and lots of other altercations like this, lots of people get caught up in the tactic itself, but not so much the substance of why the protest is occurring. You know, we saw this last year with uh, Black Lives Matter. People got mad over broken property and looting, but people never wanted to address the material conditions and the root of the cause that enabled those things to happen. So the question you need to ask yourself is, how many more people are going to die because Kirsten Cinema decided to get paid? Senator Cinema is opposing an incredibly popular bill. Over 90% of Americans support lowering prescription drug prices, and Cinema campaigned to lower drug costs for seniors during her 2018 re-election campaign. She is opposing things like free pre-K, free community college, a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, eliminating child poverty through a tax credit, all because she took legalized bribes from corporations, and now she's doing their bidding. So desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, uh, President Biden also had something to say about this. A reporter asked him about it and he said, quote unquote, well, no, I don't think those tactics are appropriate, but, you know, it's a part of the process. So he kind of gave the standard politician answer that he has to as a president saying, uh, no, I don't believe those tactics are appropriate, but, you know, it, it is a part of the process. So, I mean, even President Biden, who is probably one of the most conservative Democrats, maybe not as conservative as Senator Sinema or Senator, or Senator Manchin, but uh, President Biden, who has been a Washington insider uh, for so long and who is, um, you know, still kind of a centrist when it comes to, um, you know, uh, left versus right in politics as a whole, even he is starting to see the incredible uh, corruption and hypocrisy among these two senators, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin. And I believe he's beginning to lose sympathy for them. Now, a lot of people are angry over this. Um, I, I believe the, I, I think it was the Democratic Senate caucus, one caucus within the Senate, I think it was, um, there was supposed to be a joint statement. I don't know if they actually released this joint statement or not, but where they essentially said all of the Democratic leaders within the House and the Senate, they said that, um, you know, what happened to Senator Sinema was unacceptable. Um, these people breached a quorum. Well, if these people breached a quorum by following uh, Senator Sinema into a bathroom, you know what's a much bigger breach of decorum? Having a dead mother because she couldn't afford to buy insulin. My concern is with the latter. My concern is not with Senator Sinema being harassed because she is corrupt. My concern is with the people who are going to lose their lives because of the policies that Senator Sinema is um, obstructing right now. Uh, Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, and any other holdout needs to feel as much public pressure as humanely possible in this moment. You know, decorum can wait when dead bodies are piling up. Decorum can wait when the American people don't have basic social safety nets, and that's my take on it. Now, into our last topic for today's episode, 
Former presidential candidate and New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang announced he is leaving the Democratic Party. Yang is set to start his new Forward Party in conjunction with the October 5th release of his new book, Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. This new party will be called the Forward Party. Now, I've always thought Yang was an interesting character. He gained a huge platform after the 2020 presidential primary. Um, There were a number of policies that he campaigned on that were even to the left of Bernie Sanders, such as the the decriminalization of all drugs, the universal basic income, etc., which I commend him for. However, there are also many policies he campaigned on that are just absolutely atrocious, such as uh, you know, not supporting a $15 minimum wage, you know, supporting something like uh, the sunset clause, which is saying that all regulations on corporations need to be evaluated every five to 10 years, which is literally a right wing um, ultra libertarian idea. And then, you know, obviously everyone knows about his horrible opinions on foreign policy when it comes to Israel, Palestine, that ultimately cost him the New York City mayoral election. Um. Look, when it comes to Andrew Yang, I never thought that universal basic income was going to be this magic solution that would fix everything. I always thought Andrew Yang failed to address the root issues within our society, such as the profit motive and labor alienation during his campaign. Um, Andrew Yang's New York City mayoral run was very disappointing. You know, he campaigned on increasing funding for police departments and arresting people with mental health problems. And a big reason why he lost that election is that he hired a lot of ex-Bloomberg consultants who are some of the most corrupt, out of touch, and frankly, unintelligent people on this earth. I mean, Bloomberg literally tried to buy his way into the 2020 Democratic primary, and he didn't even finish top three. Um, As far as this new forward party goes by Andrew Yang, frankly, I don't see it succeeding under our current two-party corporate duopoly. Um, My position has always been that starting a third party is a waste of time um, as our electoral system is currently constructed. A much better option is to work within the two mainstream parties to achieve significant policy goals. You know, this has been demonstrated by the Tea Party during the Obama and Bush years and now the squad or progressives during the Trump and Biden years. Now, there is one caveat to this. If Andrew Yang and the forward party are successful in implementing ranked choice voting everywhere, then they have a shot. But you must have ranked choice voting implemented first if you want a shot at winning an election as a third party. You know, some people make the argument that it's a long term project. It's going to take several decades for, um, you know, the quote unquote, the forward party to actually become a prominent party in American politics. The problem with that is we don't have several decades. Our earth is dying in front of us every day due to the effects of climate change. Even if a third party candidate won, you'd still have to build a coalition with one of the two existing parties to get anything done. But my personal predictions aside, I want to take a look into the six core planks of the forward party that Andrew Yang laid out on Twitter. Uh, So the first core plank is ranked choice voting and open primaries. Now, look, I completely support these two things. I think our current corporate duopoly Um, which essentially means that we have a two-party system where both parties serve corporations. Um, I believe that's horrific, and I believe it's responsible for the majority of problems we as Americans face today. Um, As far as as open primaries go, I also support those. I think they are more democratic, and they allow for better representation of the needs of the working class. Now for the second plank, fact-based governance. Now, I don't know what that means. Fact-based governance is so vague that it can be applied to so many things. You know, every person, no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, believe they're operating on facts, except for, you know, certain politicians that knowingly make decisions that benefit themselves and their pockets at the expense of what's best for humanity as a whole. 
Um, so when Andrew Yang says fact-based governance, I don't know if he's referring to the entire, you know, COVID-19 debacle with the CDC when he says fact-based governance. So yeah, I, I don't know what to make of this. Um, onto the third plank, human-centered capitalism. Um, now, you know my take on this. Human-centered capitalism is basically a grift to get people fed up with our current economic system to support left-wing reforms because people are afraid of scary words like socialism. This is also supported by data. About 50% of Gen Z holds unfavorable views of capitalism, but only 40% hold favorable views of socialism. This is due to the Red Scare propaganda that has been shoved in our brains ever since the day we were born. Another way to interpret human-centered capitalism is that he could just be talking about social democracy, which is a free market economy with strong social safety nets, such as free college and universal healthcare. If that that's what he meant. The question I would ask would be, why not just call it social democracy? Um, onto the fourth plank, effective and modern government. Again, this is just way too vague. I think everyone wants effective and modern government, no matter how right or left wing they are. By modern government, does he mean term limits for members of Congress? You know, what does he mean by effective government? Is he calling to alter or abolish the filibuster? It's just, it's so vague. I don't know what to make of it. So his fifth plank is universal basic income. And look, I think UBI is a good policy in the short term. I think it would significantly improve the quality of life for working class people. But I don't believe in Andrew Yang's philosophy that UBI would completely solve the problem of poverty and fix all the ailments in our current economic system. I think UBI is a surface level solution and doesn't address the root of the problem, which is capitalism itself. Now, the sixth and final plank for this forward party is grace and tolerance. And this is probably the most vague plank uh, there is. I literally have no idea what that means. I'm assuming he's advocating for more bipartisanship when he says grace and tolerance. And maybe he's trying to say he wants both political parties to stop having animosity towards each other. If that's what he's intending to say, then the problem I have with that is that there's no specific policy you can pass to actually make that happen. Um, the other problem with that is that I've also, I've always found people who insist on maintaining civility and decorum very weird and honestly very dumb sometimes, especially when you have people debating basic human rights and you expect me to respect that person's opinion just because they're expressing themselves and they feel entitled to have their opinion heard. Whether it comes to things like deciding whether to drone strike kids in Afghanistan or allow companies like Facebook to profit off of teen suicide, the last thing I'm really concerned about is grace and tolerance. I'm more concerned about the actual policies that are implemented. So all in all, I personally don't think this forward party has the ideology to sustain itself and become a prominent political party. I mean, the majority of these planks um, are just incredibly vague and broad, and there's just there's no real ideology behind this party to actually make it sustainable in the long run. But that's just my personal opinion, and I think it'll be interesting to see how it all shapes out. All views expressed in this episode are the personal biases and opinions of each host, and they do not reflect the opinions of the Institute for Youth and Policy. The Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to continue supporting us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram page at YIP Institute. If you'd like to see more from me, follow me on TikTok at Political Dan, where I cover the latest news stories right after they release. If you'd like to see more from me, follow me on Instagram at KateMCL16. You can also check out our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload a new episode every week.